Haggard Medical Center was the name of the clinic on campus at Florida State University. And it seems like every day I had a different friend visit them. It could just be perception or the fact that I knew a lot more folks in college than I do today. But it was probably that college is a lot like a preschool. Kids living in close proximity to each other are going to pass around every cold, virus, and infection known to man. I heard many a story that began with, so I was at Thaggard when, but Thaggard was notorious for one thing, pregnancy tests. No matter what you were there for, they administered a pregnancy test. Head cold, pregnancy test. Head wound, pregnancy test. Are you a man? Pregnancy test. The way I was taught in the public education system and later in college, getting pregnant was as easy as looking at someone the wrong way. It spread faster and quicker than mono. And it was bound to happen to you and everyone you know. It wasn't until later I found out the difficulties many have getting pregnant. According to the CDC, one in 10 couples will have trouble getting pregnant or sustaining a pregnancy. Infertility clinics have become a huge business, and many treatments for infertility are not covered by insurance. While it has become more acceptable to lean on friends and family for support during these challenges, many couples do not divulge their problems having children, which can lead to much heartache when Aunt Gertrude yells across the dining room table at Thanksgiving, so when are you two finally going to start having some babies? But there is one place where we find some very honest and open stories about infertility. The Bible. While the stories of Sarah and Abraham, or Elizabeth and Zechariah, are comforting, the story that I think is most open about the emotions involved in waiting for a baby is the story of Hannah. We meet Hannah on a day where they have traveled as a family to Shiloh to make sacrifices. Hannah was one of the two wives of Elkanah, and she was the one who couldn't have children. At that time, having children was the greatest value a woman could bring to her household. And because they didn't have a really strong concept of fertility back then, it was always the woman's fault if children could not be born to a couple. So Hannah was teased mercilessly by the other wife, who had many sons and daughters. And unlike in our society where couples suffer, suffer the grief of infertility together, Hannah suffers alone because Elkanah has a whole brood of children already. Although he deeply cares for Hannah, Elkanah does not share her grief or her shame in her body failing to do the one thing she feels like it was designed to do. The Kubler-Ross model is what we commonly call the five stages of grief. Hannah has clearly already passed through denial and anger, but in today's passage, we see her work through the last few stages, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. After the meal, Hannah goes to the temple alone in her grief, and as scripture puts it, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. In her prayer, she does something we all do in our grief. She tries to bargain with the Lord. Hannah promises God that if she is given a son, she will ensure that he will live and serve in the temple all of his days. This was a pretty hefty promise 
as most men who were not Levites or priests, if they served in the temple, only did so for a period of their life, such as 10 years or less. A lifetime is a long time to adhere to temple rules. Now, while Hannah is pouring out her soul to the Lord, a priest, Eli, is nearby. We'll learn later with the calling of Samuel that Eli is not a bad priest. He actually serves God quite well, but at this moment, he kind of fails at pastoral care. (laughs) Hannah is moving her lips but praying silently. She's also probably crying hysterically. As we would put it nowadays, she is making a right spectacle of herself. So Eli goes over to help and tells this clearly drunk lady to get out of the temple. Hannah explains to Eli that she is not drunk, but deeply grieved at her present childlessness. And Eli blesses her. This gives Hannah what she needs to move into the final stage of grief, acceptance. She leaves the temple, goes back to eat and drink with her husband, and her countenance was sad no more. But in this story, Hannah is not the only one suffering from a moment of barrenness. Israel, God's chosen people, were also having a barren moment. No great leader had been raised up, and God had not spoken to the people of Israel in a long time. But God hears both of their cries, those of Hannah and those of Israel. And God answers both of them with a miraculous birth, the birth of Samuel. Samuel will go on to appoint Saul as the first king of Israel and will raise up David to be arguably the greatest king. Samuel is a turning point in the Israelites' history. But all Hannah knows is that she finally has been given a child. Hannah keeps her vow to the Lord and gives Samuel to the temple after he is weaned. And her sacrifice of giving up the one child she had so desperately been praying for set all of the wheels in motion for Israel to become a great nation. When Hannah gives up her son, she sings a song about the miracles of God, about God's ability to turn the world on its head. This is not just a song for her but a song for the nation of Israel. Hannah's song is one of God's triumph, God's victory, and one Mary will borrow from for her Magnificat. What is comforting about this story is not that Hannah was finally able to have a child. God answers our prayers, but it sometimes does not occur as we think it should. What is comforting about this story is that Hannah let go and let God as the Curcio folks like to say. It isn't until Hannah fully pours out her heart to God, not until Hannah becomes a hot mess at the temple, not until Hannah confides in the nearest priest who blesses her, that Hannah begins to move on from her grief. She has left every hope she has on the altar of the Lord. She has conceded that neither her nor her husband are in control. And finally, she has unburdened her soul. Later, Hannah becomes pregnant. But again, she doesn't try to renegotiate with God. She doesn't hide Samuel from the Lord. Hannah takes the most precious thing in her life and gives him to God. And she lets God turn him into the man 
he is destined to be. Hannah truly prays the prayer, thy will be done. I'm sure Hannah would have rather kept her child at home and raised him herself. But Hannah keeps her vow and gives up her world to God. And God takes her offering and makes miracles with it. God didn't stop multiplying the loaves and the fishes we offer him back in the day. God still takes everything we give him and does wondrous things. God still turns the world on its head. God still gives the feeble strength, lifts up the lowly from the ashes, and gives the barren children. But sometimes we need to get out of the way. We cannot control the workings of the world. And that is okay, because God can. So pour out your soul to the Lord about your deepest desires, your grief, your fears. And then... Have hope, like Hannah, that God will not forget us and our struggles and our grief. Have hope, like Israel, that God will raise up great leaders to lead us and guide us into the next chapter of our story. And have hope that even when God seems quiet or distant, even when he feels far away or as though he has forgotten us, God is working in our lives to bless us. Unburden your soul. And then, hope.